Well, if you would, let's go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 12. To Romans chapter 12. Uh, we are coming now to verses 3 through 8. But I want to remind you once again that the umbrella over everything that Paul is going to say in the rest of this letter are those first two verses, Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Dear Christian, God has shown you amazing mercy. Romans 1 through 11 should have blown your socks off. You haven't just been saved from hell, as if that isn't staggering enough. God has secured your place in heaven. He has given you His own Spirit living inside of you. He has made you a part of a body, a kingdom, being made up from people, saved by grace from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Romans 8.28, everything, absolutely everything is working for your good. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing at all. In the end, everything has been working so that you, as a vessel of God's mercy, will forever live in abundant joy to the praise of the glory of His grace. Now, in light of that, in the short time that you have to live in this fallen world, you are called to devote your life to God as a living sacrifice. Don't be like the world any longer, but be transformed. Let your mind begin to see the world differently, the world as it really is, and then live as God's ambassador in this world. Live with the customs of the kingdom of light in the midst of the kingdom of darkness. And that way others can see the power of God and the power of His gospel in your life. And they may come to know Him as well. Last time we were in this study, we saw that the transformed life begins with a renewed mind. Our outlook our worldview, our understanding of reality, our moral intuition, these are all being reshaped as we see and savor God in His truth. As Christians, we are to be a people of truth. We're to live in God's truth. We're to love God's truth. We're to submit our minds and our hearts to God's truth and allow it to have its a powerful effect on us. And now as we come to verse 3, Paul is still talking about our minds. He's talking about how you think and how I think. Uh, let's read verses 3 through 8. Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. Remember, this is the very word of God. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, 
are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Do you see in verse 3 that Paul is still talking about our minds? Three times he uses the word think in that one verse alone. He is teaching us how to think. The transformed life, the life lived for the glory of Jesus begins with proper thinking. But here's the surprise. Uh, Here is what you probably didn't expect. Transformed living does not begin first and foremost with learning how to think about this world rightly. Now that is important. Uh, We need to understand what this world is really about. We need to understand what's going on in this world. We need to understand God's plan, what he's doing in this world, what's happening with men. We need to understand moral principles. We need to understand moral issues. We need to know how to apply God's truths to the moral questions of our day. None of that is where Paul goes. He doesn't say, let's live for Jesus. Now let's learn how to think rightly about abortion. Let's learn how to think rightly about gay marriage. Let's learn how to think rightly about gender and sexuality. What is a biblical marriage, a biblical family? What is the role of government? He doesn't go to any of that. Instead, the first place he goes is this. How you think of yourself. How you think of yourself. The target that Paul is taking aim at when he speaks of the renewed mind, is not ignorance. It's pride. What God is most fundamentally changing in us, as we spend time in God's Word, as we receive a Christian education from the Bible, what's fundamentally happening is not just learning new facts. It's beholding God and our pride being stripped away. God's word having a humbling effect on us. The renewed mind is a mind that is experiencing pride being killed and humility being cultivated. To put this as simply as I can, here is what is of first importance. First importance in living the transformed life. Humility. Humility. This is very helpful to us. Our our culture tends to think that education is the solution to every problem. Our culture likes to combat ignorance at every turn. And so if there is a social problem of any kind, one of the first answers our culture turns to is awareness. How can we educate the public? How can we make sure the public is aware? How can we help people think rightly about this issue so that we can solve this problem? Are drugs a problem? Let's educate the kids and how bad drugs really are. Is bullying an issue? Well, let's start raising an awareness about it and teach people how to spot it. 
Is obesity killing Americans? Well, let's start a campaign. Let's teach folks how to combat it. Mount Hermon, these are not bad things. Ignorance is a real problem. Education is important. But ignorance is not the main reason people use drugs. Ignorance is not the main reason people bully. Ignorance isn't the main reason that people make bad choices concerning their health. At the root of all sin is pride. Education is not the ultimate answer. Humility is the ultimate answer. Allow me to briefly mention four lessons that I see about pride from verse 3. Okay? So here we go. Four lessons about pride from verse 3. So lesson number one is this. Prideful living is conformity to this world. Prideful living is conformity to this world. So so you see that? Verse 2, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. You're to be different from this world. You're to be transformed. This begins with your minds and how you think. And now, what is the very first thing Paul instructs us to do so that we will think rightly and not be conformed to this world? Don't think too highly of yourself. That's where he goes. Implication, that's what marks the rest of the world. This is what has always marked us until we are Christians and will continue to mark us if we don't fight it. (laughs) Uh, Here's how the rest of the world of mankind lives with pride, with lofty assessments of themselves. Self-esteem is man's problem. It isn't that man's self-esteem is too low. It's that man's self-esteem is too high. Why do people have this idea that they always deserve better than what they have? Why do people get so easily offended when something goes against them and their preferences? Why do they live their lives in the service of themselves? It's because men views himself too highly. People are too important in their own eyes. Even folks who are depressed or lacking in confidence or who are full of self-pity are often at the root paralyzed because they're thinking too highly of themselves. Frankly, if you don't esteem yourself so highly, you won't be so quickly paralyzed by your failures or your weaknesses. Pride is at the bottom of arrogance, and pride is at the bottom of self-pity. Both are just two different expressions of pride. Mount Hermon, do you want to be different than this world? Do you want to stick out like a glorious sore thumb for Jesus? Do you want to turn this world upside down by being radically unique then have a mindset consumed with the greatness of Jesus and then see yourself rightly. I am nothing more than a little housefly who's been given the privilege to buzz around this incredible blazing sun called God. And what a God he is. What a joy to get to be that little buzzing fly that gets to enjoy him and adore him. 
What an amazing thing that he has looked upon me in love and secured me in grace so that I get to buzz around him and not get burnt up. You and I as Christians get to live in the glory of God forever. The point is this, the rest of the world thinks highly of self. The rest of the world is focused on self. We are to think of God. We are to be consumed with God. And we are to see ourselves in light of him. Who can put themselves next to God and have high thoughts of themselves? Lesson two. Pride is the great enemy of the Christian life. We just see this over and over and over again, not only in Romans, but all over the Bible. And here we see it when we realize that Paul is going to spend the next three chapters, the next three chapters teaching us practical lessons about how to live a transformed life that worships God. And yet at the beginning of these three chapters, this is the very first thing he says. This is the beginning of Paul's practical teaching. Put pride away. The quickest way for us to prove that our faith is false and that we are not truly Christians is for us to embrace pride. Those who live in self-righteousness are the furthest away from God. There is a reason that Jesus saved his strongest rebukes for the Pharisees and those who lived in arrogance. You remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Both men were praying, but but the Pharisee was proud. The Pharisee was self-righteous. In the Greek, verse 11 of that chapter literally says, the Pharisee standing prayed to himself. In other words, the Pharisee was praying, but because of his pride, he wasn't really praying at all. He was praying to self. He thought he was praying to God, but God has nothing to do with the prayers of the proud. You see, pride will not only disrupt your ability to live Christianly, pride will not only disrupt your ability to live as a witness in this world, pride will disrupt your very communion with God because he opposes the proud. Church, we need to hear that. We need to tremble when we hear that. Do you know what it is to have God opposed to you? Here you are, you're striving for this, you're striving for that, but because of your pride, God is opposed to all that you're striving for. So if you parent in pride, God is opposed to your parenting. And you should expect that he will thwart your efforts and not bless them. If you work in business and you conduct your business in pride, you should expect that God will be opposed to your work, that he will disrupt your work, that he will not make it fruitful or pleasant. I've read this quote to you many times before. I find it very, very helpful. This is from the Puritan William Law. He said, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Under the banner of this truth, give up yourselves to the meek and humble spirit of the Holy Jesus. Humility must sow the seed or there can be no reaping in heaven. Look not at pride only as an unbecoming temper, nor at humility only as a decent virtue, 
No, the one is death and the other is life. The one is all hell and the other is all heaven. So much as you have of pride, so much you have of the evil one alive in you. So much you have of true humility, so much you have of the Lamb of God within you. Could you see with your eyes what every stirring of pride does to your soul? You would beg of everyone you meet to tear this viper away from you, though it meant the loss of a hand or the loss of an eye. And could you see what a sweet transforming power there is in humility? How it expels the poison of pride. How it makes room for the Spirit of God to live within you. You would rather wish to be the footstool of all the world than to lack the smallest degree of it. Is that how you see pride and humility? Do you see pride as the great enemy of your Christian life? The root of all your sin? The root underneath every curse that comes your way? And do you see humility as the great virtue to pursue? With humility, you are ready to receive everything else that Paul has to teach us in these chapters. With pride, these chapters will have no effect for you except to increase your judgment. Lesson three. Lesson three. Pride is the great enemy of the Christian mind. I think that's what makes this particular passage so incredibly helpful. We learn here that Christian living proceeds from Christian thinking and that the great enemy of Christian thinking is pride. You will not be able to see the world rightly or make right decisions as long as you think too highly of yourself. Pride skews the mind. Arrogance distorts true perspective. Christ will appear less glorious to you, his mercy not as grand, his wonders not as spectacular, his handiwork not as amazing when you think too highly of yourself. Other people will be less valuable to you. Their offenses against you will seem worse than they really are. Their kindnesses to you will appear less dear to you. Your inward, distorted sense of worthiness and deservedness will skew the way you see everything else in this world. God, His creation, other people, the events of your life. If right living is produced by right thinking, by right perspective, and pride is the enemy of right perspective, then let us kill pride. For the sake of being a living sacrifice to Jesus, we are to kill pride. For the sake of offering up our lives to God in spiritual worship, we are to kill pride. We are to put it to death within us. Lesson four. Pride is the great enemy of the local church. Pride is the great enemy of the local church. As we keep going in this chapter you're going to see that Paul is not just thinking about Christians living their lives in isolation. He's teaching us how to live transformed lives of worship to God, and he's going to focus on our lives lived together in the context of a local church. Paul assumes that Christians are in community with one another. God is most glorified in this world 
When the world sees Christians united together, loving one another, serving one another, caring for one another. A Christian out by himself is a torch in the darkness, but a local church living life together is a bonfire in the darkness. We're not called to be isolated torches. We're called to live life together, to be a bonfire that shows the world the power of God to change lives. This very paragraph that we're reading here in chapter 12 It's about life in the local church. Did you see that in verses 4 and 5? That's where Paul is going. As in one body, we have many members. The members do not all have the same function. So we, the many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. So in that context, in this chapter about life lived in the fellowship of a local church, here's the very first thing Paul has to say on this matter. Don't think too highly of yourself. What's the lesson? Pride must be a great enemy to local churches. And it is. In fact, pride was a big issue in this church in Rome. Back in Romans 2, we saw Paul take aim at Jewish pride. That is, some of the Jews in the church in Rome... We're holding on to this idea that had been instilled in them from youth that Jews were inherently better than Gentiles. That Jews were superior to Gentiles. It's similar to racism here in the United States, but the issue there was ethnocentrism. It was a worldview of superiority built on ethnicity rather than skin color. And Paul took aim at those Jewish Christians By showing that the Jews are just as depraved and just as much in need of the grace of God through Jesus as the Gentiles. In fact, because of their greater privileges, the Jews of Paul's day had more to give an account for before God than even the Gentiles. And so Paul sought to humble the Jews in the church in Rome. But then later in Romans 11, Paul turned his gun the other direction. And he attacked the pride of the Gentiles in that church. After all, many Jews had rejected their own Messiah. They had put him on a cross. The Jews had run the apostles out of town. And meanwhile, Gentiles were believing. And Gentiles were being saved. And so there were some Gentiles in the church of Rome who were thinking, actually, we're the favored ones. We're the better ones. The Jews, they killed Jesus. The Jews are the ones who who stumbled over the stumbling stone. But we, the Gentiles, we are the the favored ones. And Paul said, no, you are branches on a Jewish tree. God worked through the Jews to get the gospel to you. You wouldn't have the gospel were it not for them. And so Paul took aim at pride in in the heart of the Gentiles. Later, we're going to get to Romans 14. And we're going to see one very practical way that pride was showing up in this congregation in Rome. But for now, let me just point out that this letter wasn't just intended for that church. This letter was written for our church and for every local church. And pride is an issue in every local church because pride is an issue in every human being. And local churches are made up of people. Pride threatens the unity of a church. Pride threatens the witness of every church. We read our church covenant a while ago. It had the date 1904. That was a misprint. It was 1903, uh, the first Sunday of November 1903, that our church adopted that church covenant, which means we're heading on to 
115 years as a church body here, God has been very gracious. God has kept a gospel witness here on this corner of Rocky Mount for 115 years. But church, we can never take it for granted. We must always be alert because pride could bring it all to the ground. Pride divides churches. Pride pits brothers and sisters in Christ against one another. Pride breeds feelings of bitterness and and anger and and hurt over offenses. Uh, Prideful hearts are are, are turned cold and hard. They, They cause friendships to end. Pride undermines love and true care and compassion for one another. If we in this church live with high thoughts of ourselves, we're not just putting ourselves in danger, we're putting this body in danger. If we live with high thoughts of ourselves, we're not just hurting our witness, we're hurting the witness of this church. We're not just causing our own torch to grow dim, we're hurting the witness of the whole church. Indeed, we could cause the entire bonfire to go out. How many churches have ended and don't exist today because of what the devil did through pride to bring that church down? Now, having seen how important this issue is, I want us to take to heart Paul's command. I want us to give it special attention, special regard. I'm going to do this very quickly, so you're going to have to listen quickly. okay? But we're going to note five brief observations. We're just going to observe the text. Five brief observations about the text, and we're done. Here we go. Number one, see the authority of Paul's command. Do you see the authority? Verse 3 For by the grace given to me. Paul almost never does this. Paul almost never plays the apostleship card. His motivation for speaking to these Christians is that he genuinely loves them. He genuinely cares for them. But he's also fulfilling his calling as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's getting ready to speak about spiritual gifts. Here's a gift that was given to Paul. He speaks as a personally appointed, personally called, authorized messenger from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And now, as he speaks directly to the root sin that threatens the church in Rome and threatens every local church in the world, he reminds us of this authority. It's just another way that Paul was saying, take this seriously. Hear and heed what I'm saying. It's like when your parents call you by your full name. Benjamin hears me say, Benjamin Asher Nail. He knows that's probably not a good sign. Something important's about to be said. Well, that's what Paul was doing here. He's playing the apostleship card. He's, he's highlighting the importance of this command. Number two, see the recipients of Paul's command In Romans 2, he spoke to the Jews about their pride. In Romans 11, he spoke to the Gentiles about their pride. But who's he speaking to here? For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you. This command is for every person in the church of Rome and every person in Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church and every Christian in every local church around the world. It is for everybody. It's for those sitting in Priscilla and Aquila's house there in Rome on a Sunday, listening to one of the elders read this letter that they just received from the Apostle Paul. 
It's for every Christian sitting in, in underground churches in China and churches in Russia and South America, and it's for us. It's a universal command for every Christian, which means I need to tell myself it's for me. It's for me. And you need to tell yourself it's for you. But I'll tell myself it's for me because it is. Number three, see Paul's command put negatively. Paul's command put negatively. That is, he tells us what not to do first. And what does he say? I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, this is really important. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself. He doesn't say that the problem is thinking about yourself. He says the issue is thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. Why do I point that out? Well, C.S. Lewis has a very famous quote about humility, and I like it. C.S. Lewis said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And there is some truth to that, right? That, that, that true humility should be that we're focused on God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're not always thinking about ourselves first. But that is not where Paul goes here. He doesn't say stop thinking about yourself. Rather, Paul seems to be working with the idea that all people instinctively have an assessment of themselves. Even if you're not consciously thinking of yourself, the way you see the world around you is constantly going to be shaped by how you subconsciously think of yourself. So think about it this way. If deep down I think I'm big and I think I'm important, then I'm going to see everything else from a posture of looking down. Whereas, whereas if, if I'm humble... If deep down I see myself as small, I am going to look around and see everything from a posture of looking up. That's the posture we're to have. We're not to have a posture of looking down where we think highly of ourselves and therefore we see everybody else as small. Even God is small. No, we're to see ourselves as little. And then we're looking up at everything and everything becomes so much more important and glorious and wonderful. Paul seems to be saying that all of us are going to have some evaluation, some measure of who we are that colors how we think about everything else. And therefore, his current concern is not to teach us how to think of ourselves less, but how to think of ourselves rightly. Fourth observation. See his command put positively. And what is it? Think with sober judgment. Do you see that in the verse? Don't think too highly of yourself. Think with sober judgment. You're going to have some view of yourself that shapes how you see everything else. That's just the way God made you. But make sure you see yourself rightly. Make sure you are thinking about yourself with sober judgment. Your mind is prone to be drunk with self-love. And when you're drunk, you don't see things as they really are. When you're drunk, that really ugly person looks really beautiful. And when you're drunk with self-love, your really ugly self looks really beautiful. And you see yourself wrongly, and you think more highly of yourself than you are. This is a command for us to be transformed by living first and foremost in having an honest, objective, sober assessment of ourselves. 
And just to be blunt, if you see yourself rightly, how can you not say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners? Because you know what? I know you're a congregation of sinners, but you know whose sin I know more intimately than anybody else's? You know more, whose sin I know more, more darkly? The depths of it than anybody? It's mine. And so we're to have an honest, a sober assessment of ourselves. And then finally, number five, see the help for Paul's command. How can we as Christians get a proper assessment of ourselves? How can we see ourselves rightly? Answer, by using the right measuring stick. (laughs) Paul tells us to think of ourselves with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And so here's how we're going to bring this sermon home. How do you tend to think of yourself? As a success? As a failure? Do you tend to think highly of yourself? If so, why? On what grounds do you think of yourself that way? Or do you tend to think of yourself with disdain? Do you tend to think of yourself with discouragement? Maybe you walk around feeling like a failure. Why? What's your measuring stick? On what grounds do you have your thoughts about yourself that you have? Our culture measures people with all kinds of earthly measuring sticks. How much money do you have? How big is your house? How many people love you? How many people want to be like you? How many friends do you have on Facebook? Have you accomplished some great project in this life? Have you done well at your workplace? Have you moved up in your company? Have you achieved higher and higher positions of responsibility? Did you get married? Did your marriage last? Or others might even judge you this way. Having, have you succeeded in blazing your own trail? Have you been able to rebel against the norms of society? And have you lived your life your own way? Frank Sinatra, right? I did it my way. Is that the, the measure of success? Have you been your own person, not constrained by the expectations of others? Mount Hermon, there are 10,000 measuring sticks out there that our culture holds up and says, measure yourself. See where you measure up. This verse tells us the only measure that really matters. Faith. Faith. How is your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you trust him? Do you have a growing trust in him to the extent that you have come to see your sinfulness and your desperation to the extent that you are embracing Jesus as your Savior, to the extent that Jesus is the treasure of your life, to that extent you are strong. And to the extent that you think you're pretty good off without Jesus, to that extent you are weak. If you want to live a life that will matter, If you want to live a life that will impact future generations, if you want to live a life with eternally good consequences, the call of this passage is to grow in faith. And you know what's so great about using faith as the measuring stick of thinking about yourself? It just destroys pride. The more we grow in faith, the more we recognize that we are nothing apart from Jesus the more we see how great God is and how small we are in comparison. 
the more we grow in faith, the more we need our brothers and our sisters in, their, in our lives. The more we grow in faith, the more we see that we deserve nothing but hell and that every good gift is a gift of grace from the hands of our Father. And so my question for you this morning is this. How is your faith? Is it strong? Is it growing? Are the roots of your soul going deep into the promises of Christ? Is the name of Jesus more precious to you than anything else in this world? Are you looking at the world around you from the perspective of a blood-bought, heaven-bound, redeemed sinner? Or are you looking at the world from some other perspective? Let us not think too highly of ourselves. Let us think with sober judgment. And here's our measuring stick. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.